And so that grace is the whole, I said, the coin of the realm. It's, it's, it's the whole, you know, focus of who we are as Christians is to engage in our communities, in our workplaces, in our politics as, as creatures of grace and offering grace, extending grace to others. That's a very different way of being than saying, we're going to get power and we're going to make people do what we think is right. Today, I'm joined by Ellen Reinock. Ellen is a lawyer and the executive director of the Church State Council in Westlake Village, California. Ellen is also a friend and has been a mentor to me in my career as a lawyer over the years. As you'll hear, we discuss a plethora of issues in today's episode, but we start out with one issue that has dominated the news here in the United States this past week, mass shootings. Now, nearly 30 years ago, in 1990, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the Christian faith community of which I am a part, issued a statement about assault weapons. Before we jump into my conversation with Ellen, I want to share an excerpt from that statement with you today. Here it is. It says, automatic or semi-automatic military-style weapons are becoming increasingly available to civilians. They are made to kill people. They have no legitimate recreational use. The argument is made by some that banning assault weapons limits the rights of people and that guns do not commit crimes, but people do. While it is true that violence and criminal inclinations lead to guns, it is also true that availability of guns leads to violence. The teachings and example of Christ constitute the guide for the Christian today. Christ came into the world to save lives, not to destroy them. When Peter drew his weapon, Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. All who take the sword will die by the sword. Jesus did not engage in violence. Ellen Reinick, thank you so much for talking with me today on the podcast. I'm delighted to be with you, Steve. So, first of all, let's talk about the work that you do at the Church State Council. Sure thing. So, the Church State Council is the public affairs and religious liberty ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, serving a five-state southwestern region that includes Hawaii. Um, basically, we divide into really three areas, education, legislative advocacy, and legal services. <clears throat> so I guess what we're doing today fits into the education part of it, to talking about issues of religious freedom, church and state, religious persecution, uh, intolerance, etc., cetera, uh, preaching. I do my own Freedoms Ring radio show for the past 20 years. Uh, legislatively, we monitor state legislation that impacts on churches and on religious freedom uh, and religious discrimination. And with respect to legal services, we represent people of all faiths, especially with workplace religious freedom issues, accommodation issues, whether for our own members' Sabbath accommodation issues or for people of any other faith, uh, because of the golden rule, of course. You know, we believe in religious liberty for everybody. And, um, uh, yeah, well, that's about a uh, pretty good summary. 
And so you are the executive director of the Church State Council as well as the uh, general, general council. council, right? And you, how long yeah. have you been there now? You've been there about 25, 30 years, right? I am in tw- year 26. Wow, that's great. And, and uh, still going strong. You've done a lot of work, uh, you know, as you mentioned, your advocacy work and legislative advocacy here in California, strengthening the laws that protect uh, religious people in the workplace. And um, there's been some really good developments here that you have been involved with uh, in in that arena. You know, we've uh, the Lord has really blessed. We now have the strongest protection uh, for people of faith in the workplace mm-hmm. in a state like California that Christians would not think of as providing great protection for them, but it does. Mm-hmm. And we've taken it to the next level uh, because after you pass good laws, then you have to do regulations. And so we've succeeded in getting some really tough regulations enacted. We're working on good jury instructions so the judges can instruct juries properly about uh, how, to, how to view these cases. So, yeah, we've, we've had a good run. So let's kind of pivot here and talk about some of the news that we've been hearing the last week or so. Um, I mean, just within the last week, we've had two major mass shootings that have dominated the news here in the United States. Uh, first, it was El Paso, where 22 people were killed. Uh, I think another 24 were injured. And then up in Dayton, Ohio, um, uh, there was just, I think it was the next day or something like that, there were 10 people killed and 27 injured. In both of these cases, high-powered semi-automatic rifles were uh, used. And these rifles are essentially the same as those used in a battlefield, except for they weren't fully automatic. And uh, so, you know... As Christians, and specifically, you're a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, as am I, um, does the Adventist Church have a specific stance on the issue of um, what some people call assault weapons, you know, here in, in America? In other words, do we believe that people ought to own these? And, and all, you know, just because the church has a stance doesn't mean, of course, that every member is going to agree. But is there an official church stance on this? Actually, there is. Um, it was uh, drafted back in 1990, uh, and uh, it's available if if you want to Google uh, Seventh-day Adventist statements or general conference statements, you'll see all statements that the Church has issued on many, many topics, but uh, it's entitled Ban on Sales of Assault Weapons to Civilians, and it says uh, you know, many crimes are committed through the use of these kinds of weapons. They are made to kill people. They have no legitimate recreational use. And it builds on uh, biblical teachings about peace. And, uh, you know, that Christ came into the world to save lives, not to destroy them. And, and that really seeking peace and seeking life and health for people is, is our emphasis as Adventists um, and opposing this kind of death and destruction that uh, that assault weapons uh, have caused so often. And, you know, I have to say, Steve, the most compelling discussion that I've heard this week was from someone who survived an attack in my hometown about a mile from where I used to live for many, many years at the borderline 
uh, here in Thousand Oaks, California. Mm-hmm. And he very eloquently said, you know, every time there's another one of these attacks, all of the survivors of all these prior attacks are victimized again and again mm-hmm. and again. Very, very powerful testimony. And so even some Christians make the argument, well, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And uh, so they would you know, disagree with this statement and say, this isn't about the guns, it's about evil people, and it's about mental health, it's about video games, it's about morality, it's about all these other things. And you know, perhaps we could delve into that more, but um, just on a... Uh, uh, a philosophical level, you know, people would also say, well, the church here is engaging in politics. The church is, is delving into an area, into an area that the church should not get involved with. Um, what would you say to that? You know, with a statement like this, that the church made, of course, this is, you know, 25, 30 years ago here, 20 years ago that they made this statement, but um, what is the line for the church engaging or making political statements or speaking out about political issues? So this really, I think, is one of the most important issues of the day, Steve, and I'm glad we're going to have this discussion because, you know, let's just frame it in in broader terms. We live at a time when the church has taken power in this country. Our administration is populated by people who are hardcore culture warriors um, you know, and are really doing Christian warfare uh, at the highest levels of government. And there's really, and, 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 and the problem, there's, so there's a distinction. In the Old Testament, we have the distinction between the priest and the prophet. Mm-hmm. So the priest is the political establishment. And that's what the church has become today, is, is very much aligned with the political establishment. And then you have the prophet, who is apart from the establishment, and he challenges the status quo and calls, uh, calls the society to a higher moral and spiritual uh, dimension or plane or whatever. And, and really, the role of the church in society is a prophetic function. Like the prophets of old, uh, society's moral standard is always going to be lower than what the church should be presenting and advocating for. We should always, you know, the church advocating for God's values, society's always falling short. That's that's the nature of reality, right, of, of the mm-hmm. human condition. Sure. When the church forsakes its prophetic function, and becomes a priesthood, becomes part of the establishment, then what happens is, like we do today, you have you know, well-known Christian leaders um, making excuses or defending the inexcusable behavior and words of, of elected officials, you know, of, of our president. And, and, and I want to give a caveat here. Because I have no intention here of being political or partisan in any way of, uh, you know, addressing, you know, who's right or wrong as far as policies, et cetera. Um, But there are clearly things that the president has done 
that should not be excused by religious leaders. Mm-hmm. But when they become the priesthood, when they become so closely aligned and they start engaging in that kind of conduct, what happens then is the onlooking world looks at the church and it discredits the church, it discredits the gospel, and it paints Jesus in a bad light. And that's the biggest risk of being too uh, partisan as a church and too political. So if the church is to play this role of the prophet, the outsider who's speaking the truth, um, at what point does the prophet cross the line and become too political? You get what I'm saying? I think some people would um, accuse, you know, those who would make statements about assault weapons, for example, of of being political. But in your mind, uh, you're saying that's not political uh, in the sense that it's, you know, prohibited in the sense uh, because this is uh, the prophetic role of the church to speak the truth in society. So, yes, it's, and, and, you know, within our governance system in America, we make a very clear distinction between the rights of the church to advocate on issues. Religious bodies can speak to issues all day long. Mm Mm-hmm but they are not entitled to engage in electoral politics. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. when you have churches essentially uh, endorsing candidates, political parties, and aligning themselves politically and, uh, you know, behind a a political party and a political agenda, um, that's a problem. Now, to some extent, it was a problem in the black church before it became a problem in the white church. Mm-hmm. But in the last generation, it's been, I think, a bigger problem in the white church uh, in terms of just really overt political organizing and, um, and, and power grabbing from the church. And, and what happens to the church when the church engages in those types of you know, electoral politics? What are the down, what's the downside for the church? Well... For starters, we have to understand that the coin of the realm for Christianity is not power, but grace. Mm-hmm. The, the most basic gospel message that I think Christians of all stripes can relate to is that we owe a debt to God for our sin that we cannot repay. Mm -hmm. And Christ has paid it for us. He has paid that debt for us through his holy life and his atoning death on the cross of Calvary. So we are, as Christians, we acknowledge that we are recipients of amazing grace. And so that grace is the whole, I said, the coin of the realm. It's, it's, It's the whole, you know, focus of who we are as Christians is to engage in our communities, in our workplaces, in our politics as, as creatures of grace and offering grace, extending grace to others. Mm-hmm. That's a very different way of being than saying, we're going to get power and we're going to make people do what we think is right, which is coercive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And and Jesus is non-coercive. You know, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have rewired their brain chemistry. He's almighty. He, he could have fixed the problem right there. You know, Jesus didn't have to die, at least in theory. But, you know, God doesn't use power to solve the sin problem. We, lacking grace, we think that power, political power, is a good substitute for grace. And so we'll use power to try to solve, you know, the sin problems in society, whether it's abortion or something else. And abortion is kind of the big ticket item now that we have all these uh, restrictive abortion laws being enacted around the country. So Christians obviously, though, still advocate for issues, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and sometimes those issues are things like civil rights or, um, you know, let's, yeah, the abortion is, the issue, of course, is a big one for a lot of evangelical Christians. Sure. Um, and, and, and so and there's... rightly so. Right. But, but remember, you know, see... When Christians get power and enact restrictive abortion laws, mm-hmm. it's so offensive to so many people that, you know, we're trying to, you know, uh, get people to conform to our idea of what's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I believe it would be far more effective and consistent with uh, with who God is and, and, and what our calling is if uh, we articulated that moral vision of abortion being wrong. And we invested our resources, and, and some of this clearly is being done, but invested our resources in helping, uh, you know, unwed mothers or, you know, pregnant uh, women and enabling, you know, and, and just, you know, dealing with the underlying uh, roots of the problem. Right. Right. Instead of using law as thinking that somehow law is going to be... Uh, the remedy. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's go back to the, the mass shootings. You know, after we had the most recent ones here, uh, there were some lawmakers who got on TV and said, this is because these are happening because we've kicked God out of our schools, our public schools. And, um, of course they're referring back to the Supreme court case from, was it like 1966? I can't remember the exact date. It was um, earlier than that. The, the, the two key cases were 62 and 63, the, okay. the prayer and Bible reading cases. But, you know, okay, that is such stupid political rhetoric. You know, it's it's such an example, Steve, of if you repeat a lie long enough, people will believe it to be true. It becomes, you know, kind of received wisdom. Think about... Uh, the 60s, the, you know, the whole decade of the 60s and the hippie movement and the civil uh, the civil rights era and all of that. Well, my, you know, my own view is, you know, because I'm a, I'm a product of that era. So this is somewhat personal. There was also a Jesus movement. Um, young people were looking for meaning. Why? Mm-hmm. Because not because they weren't raised in church, they were raised in church, but the church was dead. The church was dead long before the Supreme Court recognized that we live in a pluralistic society with the separation of church and state, and it's not the government's job to promote religion. 
And so the, the court decisions were, were correct. But the whole trend of society um, towards more uh, licentiousness and, and indulgence and everything else is really a product of the spiritual uh, emptiness of the church. And frankly, some of that, I think, comes back to a generation of men coming out of World War II with PTSD. War is a horrible experience, and they're starting families, and the men are emotionally and spiritually absent. That certainly describes my father. Um, I'm sure it described many others, and, and, and my father's uh, experience of war, he was in the Navy, was, was much less severe than others. Um, but So you have these families being formed and kids being born, and yes, there were many who did thrive in church culture at the time, but many others did not. The, the fact, I guess what I'm getting at is, there's so many dynamic factors that have been leading in how our our society has changed over you know the last 50 years that to uh, uh, attribute significance to these supreme court decisions is absurd sure and yeah and, and that, I, that... let me give you let me give you one one specific example of of that is counterintuitive here but i mm-hmm. think this illustrates uh, very much Thirty years after those decisions, a Lutheran family in, I want to say, Mississippi sued the local public school because they were still having Bible reading and prayer over the loudspeaker in the morning and sued to have the, you know, the separation of church and state enforced. Well, free the lawsuit the kids were ignoring what was going on over the loudspeaker. They were talking, passing notes, doing whatever they did. It happened before the bell rang at the start of the school day. Mm-hmm. There was such an outcry over the lawsuit, and the judge slapped the school with uh, with an injunction, said you have to stop that, that the kids organized and obtained permission from the judge to be able to meet for 15 minutes before the start of school, there were, you know, t- faculties there to supervise, to, you know, make sure it was safe. And the kids let out in morning devotions, and it was very well attended. Sure. And to me, that illustrates when you have government-sponsored religion, it's not really religion at all. It has to be voluntary. And that's the principle that our Constitution was founded upon, is that religion is voluntary. It's not paid for and brought to you by Uncle Sam. So we can agree that these these shootings were not, you know, God's punishment upon America for, uh, you know, somehow kicking him out of our public schools. Um, but let's, let's just, you know, and you've, you've already done this to some extent, but let's put to rest this whole concept that we need uh, government-sponsored prayer in our schools. So the whole notion that there's something uh, that the government should be able to promote Bible reading and prayer is premised on the assumption that Christianity deserves a favored place in America. 
that America is fundamentally established to be a Christian nation. And it's a false assumption. You know, even before the Constitution, from the earliest days, those who those Americans who wrote about religious liberty understood that it's religious liberty, not just for Protestants, but for Roman Catholics, for Jews, even for Muslims. That, you know, even back then, I mean, we, we had a war. Our first war after the revolution was with the Barbary pirates, you know, were with Muslims. And, and uh, Washington, our first, no, I think, I think it was Adams. Maybe who wrote, well, no, Washington drafted Adams ratified the treaty with Tripoli in 1796 that, um, that declared that we are not a Christian nation. We don't have any natural hostility with the Barbary pirates who were Muslim. That was the foundation of, of that treaty that we that we entered with them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if, if, Chris, if America belongs to Christians, and by all means, have Christian prayer, have the crosses up, have, uh, you know, whatever you want, everything Christian, and those who are not Christian have no right to complain, right? But the fact is, America is a place for all people to be able to live and work and worship freely, according to their own beliefs. And our laws, our Constitution, is designed to protect people of all religions and to provide freedom for people of all religions. And if you're going to do that, you can't have the government playing favorites. Now, going back to the logic of of Madison, um, he understood and, and, and he argued that, look, once you start down that road where you have government taking an active role, then inevitably government is going to have to choose among, you know, not just to favor Christianity, but a particular sect of Christianity. They're going to have to choose, you know, which are the religions that are okay and which ones aren't okay, uh, and ultimately could lead to the kind of religious establishment that they rejected in England, which was the Church of England, you know, the uh, 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 that, um, you know, if you weren't part of the uh, orthodoxy, there were periods where there was uh, was serious persecution in England. <clears throat> so the whole notion that government is supposed to be involved in religion is just flawed from the get-go. And besides, when we think about our sort of general attitude and derision of politicians that we, you know, we don't have a lot of confidence and trust in, and yet we're going to trust them to, to somehow make policy about religion or decisions about which religions are, are worthy of support and, and others are not. It, it really doesn't make any sense. So I want to talk a little bit about your ethnic background and uh, you're Jewish. Um, you're, you're also a Christian. Um, and as you look at the current political environment here in America, uh, what concerns you about this political environment, or do you have any concerns? Well, I'm, I'm, I guess my number, one of my, my main concerns is the growing rise of intolerance. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Trump 
ran his campaign by marginalizing first his opponents, which he did successfully, insulting and and demeaning all of them. Um, And then uh, also uh, insulting, you know, as though all the Mexicans who came to this country were rapists and, you know, um, you know, a criminal element and, and attacking Muslims and, and, uh, you know, this is, this is just so contrary to the American spirit. And yeah, it does. It does really, it has, it has certainly encouraged, you know, I, I'm not going to say that, um, you know, the violence, you know, some on the left want to draw a direct link between his rhetoric and, and violence. I'm going to stop short of that, but it certainly has uh, poisoned the atmosphere and the kind of polarization that we have in this country is is really harmful. It, it has brought alienation within congregations, within families, where people are, are now polarized. You know, you either love Trump or you hate Trump, and, and uh, you know, it's just become... Uh, a really tough, and, and of course, around the world, uh, we see the uh, the encouragement of uh, whether dictators or, or you know very strong arm rulers, <clears throat> uh, and and the marginalization of of democracy itself. So I would say, in addition to intolerance. I really have a fear for the survival of democracy. Democracy is on the decline globally, and it's on the decline in our country, frankly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you look back at the history of the Jewish people here in America, um, and specifically during the Holocaust, when we knew that, you know, over on the other side of, of the Atlantic, um, terrible things were happening to Jewish people there. Um, America at that time did not really step up to the plate and help, did they? No. In fact, there's a famous story of a boatload of of Jewish refugees that FDR specifically turned away, Mm. uh, many of whom wound up later dying in in the camps in Germany. This would have been, I want to say, 1938 maybe or 39. That um, you know, we had very restrictive immigration policies then, and so this... and we're just coming, and we're just coming out of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still economic hard times, and the American people were very much against immigration. They didn't want people coming to this country to take their jobs. Sounds a lot like today, and the result was you know denying admission to to Jewish refugees. And today, you know, Christian refugees from places like China are being denied asylum. Yeah. And so we've, we've done this historically with all, all sorts of different groups of people, you know, the Chinese, um, uh, the Jewish people. And um, of course, just with the history of slavery in our own country and the way we treat the native Americans, um, it seems like there's been this, you know, this demonization of the other and so that's what I was going to ask you is, is if you do see any parallels with what's happening today. And it sounds like you do see some parallels between what happened to the Jews, for example, in World War II and what we're doing today. It's very dangerous to start 
marginalizing people and separating into us and them. Because ultimately, when you dehumanize the other, uh, you know, there, there are very deadly consequences to it. Are, are we ever going to get to the point where, uh, you know, we are incarcerating and killing large populations like Germany did? I, I certainly hope and pray that no American thinks that that's a desirable outcome, and we wouldn't stand for that. But meanwhile, we have thousands of immigrants locked up uh, at our borders and, and kids in, in very bad conditions. Um, and then when there are people who try to be merciful and, and you know, give water to uh, immigrants or <clears throat> give somebody a ride, they get arrested for it. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're certainly on the wrong road, and it's, it's fraught with danger. Uh, I think Americans need to be paying attention. I mean, part of part of the strategy. I, I've talked to a number of people who have basically tuned out. And you know, one comment from a very close dear friend of mine. He said, "You know, his view is that the media have beat up on Trump for so long that Trump could make good on his." claim that, uh, you know, he could shoot somebody in Times Square and get away with it. My, my friend said, you know, even if the media accurately reported that Trump had did that, so many people are so tired of him being criticized, they wouldn't care. Mm. And, wow. and I think it's almost by design that, you know, uh, the you know the sorts of outrages of of his attacks on on individuals on you know Elijah Cummings on the city of Baltimore recently and mm-hmm. on you know different individuals I mean attack the so-called gang of four attack their policies right you think that their policies are out of whack fine say so explain your position you know make your case that's politics. But getting personal, you know, I get personal attacks sometimes, Steve, and I always figure that personal attacks are a sign of weakness, because when you attack somebody personally, uh, it's a sign that you really don't have a strong uh, attack on their position. Right. Ellen, it's been good to talk with you, and so I'd like to kind of wrap it up here in a sec. But before we do... um let me ask you this. How do we as individuals uh, do justice in our world today when it comes to all of these issues? Um, how do we speak with a prophetic voice, as you mentioned earlier? And I'm not talking so much about as an institution like the church or whatever, but as individuals, individual Christians, how do we, how do we have that prophetic voice without getting mired down in you know, the partisan political uh, stuff? Um, what you what, know, what Steve- would you just tell people? This, this is such a broad question, and of course, mm-hmm. there is not a one-size-fits-all, right? Sure. And we're all going to see things differently. We're going to have some different political values. We're going to have different issues that we care about. But uh, somehow, when you're asking the question, I'm reminded of a song lyric that has uh, kind of stabbed me in the heart over and over again through many decades. How many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? Mm. 
I think the first thing that we need to do is be willing to see and not turn our head and care. Because if we care, if we have compassion and we're willing to extend grace and to extend ourselves, God will give us opportunities to make a difference. It may be a difference in one person's life or one family's life. But, you know, there are opportunities all around us that we have on a daily basis to speak a word of kindness to someone, you know, or, or do something. But, you know, too often we're just kind of caught up in our own drama, in our own, you know, little world, in our own little bubble, and we're not paying attention. So I think if we just, you know, if we start by paying attention and we start with a heart of compassion and an attitude of, of being willing and asking God to, to help us to be willing and, and, and give us something to, you know, that we can do, we will have lots of opportunities. Thanks, Ellen. I really appreciate you talking with me today. Well, I sure appreciate this conversation, Steve, and uh, certainly wish you the best with your Do Justice podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Email us your comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes of the Do Justice podcast. Our email is dojusticenow at icloud.com. 